0: Disperse immediately or you will be subject to arrest ain't nothing but a thief on a time loan. 128-bit war, you play Nintendo. On some shooters, so put the bridge down or feed us to the killer bees. We get what we deserve, Life. bury me with my MP3s. Write my manifesto in 72 DPI. Life's just a game you got cheated, never learned. I write these songs to every bridge that ain't been burned. For every cop car that ain't
1: Welcome to This is America, September 15th, 2022. On this episode, first we speak with Daniel, a member of Cooperation Tulsa out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. We discuss the group's current fundraiser to benefit their community center, the greater historical context of Tulsa, the role of the community center in ongoing organizing efforts, and how it relates to another local land and gardening project. We then speak with two folks who report on the defense of a recent Pride celebration in Boise, Idaho. We talk about attempts by both the fascist far-right and the local Republican Party to encourage protests and shutting down of LGBTQ events, as well as how people mobilized to defend Pride last weekend in the face of counter-protesters. We then switch to our discussion, where we analyze and discuss current news stories on climate change, how Cooperation Jackson in Mississippi and Anarchists in Pakistan are mobilizing to provide mutual aid, the stupidity of Dark Brandon, and much more. But first, let's get to the news. In Rhode Island, police violently arrested several Teamsters on a picket line who have been on strike for months to better wages and benefits. Railroad companies and the Biden administration intervened to stop a nationwide railroad strike from popping off this week. A cooling off period was set to expire on Friday at midnight, which would have allowed a mass strike to cripple the economy and disrupt supply chains. In California, farm workers are continuing protests to demand that the governor pass legislation that would make it easier for workers to unionize. Amazon workers in Stone Mountain, Georgia, also walked out on strike on Wednesday after one worker passed out the day before due to heat exhaustion. Meanwhile, in the Parkdale neighborhood of Toronto, the autonomous tenant and neighborhood group Parkdale Organize hosted its second annual back-to-school block party. Over 400 neighbors turned out to get free back-to-school items, haircuts, eat food, and enjoy bouncy houses. Anarchists and revolutionary abolitionists held yearly Running Down the Walls events in Chicago and Philadelphia, with more events scheduled over the coming weeks. In Philadelphia, more than 200 people rallied and went on a 5K run to raise money and awareness for the Anarchist Black Cross War Chest, which provides support for political prisoners, as well as the local chapter of the Malcolm X grassroots movement. Meanwhile in Chicago, running down the walls, attendees held a rally outside of the Cook County Jail, featuring live bands, before going on a run around the facility exchanging chants with prisoners on the inside. Also in political prisoner news, Eric King has been moved to a new facility in Colorado and is in need of letters, and Daniel Baker's birthday is coming up this month, so please write them both letters. See our show notes for more information. In Boise, Idaho, despite an alliance of far-right online grifters, white nationalist talking heads, and the local GOP calling on its supporters to protest, attendees at Pride held firm and defended the event which reportedly was the largest pride celebration in Boise, Idaho, in over 30 years. In response to calls from far-right groups like the Idaho Liberty Dogs, local anti-fascists and supporters of pride mobilized to blockade what ended up being a very small counter-protest. Check out our interview later in this program for a full report. Demonstrations in defense of reproductive health and autonomy continue. In New York, clinic defenders again squared off against far-right anti-choice protesters, while in Connecticut, anarchists and members of the John Brown Gun Club opposed the Proud Boys and other far-right groups who came out to protest bodily autonomy. In Jackson, Mississippi, members of Cooperation Jackson have been mobilizing to provide the community at large with drinkable water for the past week. Read more about their mutual aid distribution and how you can support it linked in our show notes. Abolitionists in Florida held a rally and hung banners over a freeway to mark the anniversary of the Attica prison uprising. Also, according to a communique posted to Rose City Info, quote, overnight anarchists visited Portland cop Andrew Hearst at his home in Vancouver, Washington. Personal vehicle that belongs to Andrew Hearst was discreetly sabotaged. If you think we'd forget the killings of Quanice Hayes and Merle Hatch, the victims of Andrew Hearst, you are wrong can read the full communique linked in our show notes also according to a post on scenes from the atlanta forest more machinery in the atlanta forest that has been used to tear down the trees has been put to the torch according to communique posted on the website it reads various construction machines were torched on a property owned by the city of atlanta just north of entrenchment creek park at key and boulder crest All further so-called development and improvement of the South Atlanta Forest will be resisted. Solidarity with warriors and saboteurs. All power to the defenders of Elani. And now for some upcoming events. From September 17th through September 18th, there are Running Down the Walls events happening in Hamilton, Ontario, Austin, Texas, Richmond, Virginia, Portland, Oregon, Brooklyn, New York, in Massachusetts, and in Southern California. On September 24th through the 25th, there is the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair, and on October 15th, the Radical Anarchist Book Fair happens with William C. Anderson as a keynote speaker. And finally, if you value It's Going Down as a revolutionary autonomous media resource in times of crisis and you have the means, please go to itsgoingdownorg shop and that's itsgoingdownorg shop and help us grow. You can sign up to become a monthly supporter or give us a one time donation. You can follow the podcast, check out our RSS feed, follow us on whatever podcast platform you prefer, listen to us on the radio, tell a friend about us, follow us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon. And finally, if you enjoyed this show, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us. Enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon.
2: Hey everyone, uh, my name is Daniel, uh, I'm on Twitter as like Daniel Barion, I run the channel Anarch on YouTube, but today I'm actually going to be here discussing uh, two of the organizations I'm in, or rather a community center that's attached to them, called uh, the Cooperation Tulsa Community Center. Um, and uh, so I organize with both Cooperation Tulsa and Tail Anarchist Organization,
1: Cool. and We're going to be talking about all that throughout the interview. Uh, Thanks for joining us. So let's just talk about the fundraiser that's going on right now and then we'll get into the nitty gritty of the projects that are involved with it.
2: Yeah, sounds like a good idea. Um, So basically what's going on is that. One of the groups, Cooperation Tulsa, has actually been able to get a space, which they have established here in a pretty pretty good location in Tulsa, uh, that we call the Cooperation Tulsa Community Center. And um, the problem is, is that, of course, because it's in a good location, we have to pay rent and bills and all these other things in order to keep it going. And even though we have a lot of different projects planned about how we might be able to generate money at the moment uh, in order for us to kind of like bootstrap this from the ground up, uh, we are seeking out recurring donors so that month by month, we don't have to worry about those bills. So we've been doing a fundraising effort that's been going for a few months now, uh, trying to get to a goal of $1,800 a month in recurring donors. And we've actually made really big progress on that. I think as of last time I looked it was somewhere around $1,100 a month. So, um, you know, it kind of goes slow and steady. And, uh, uh, me coming here to speak with y'all right now is hopefully a way for us to, um, uh, interest some people, uh, in the project itself and give them some reasons why they would even want to, uh, pay in for, to, to us keeping a community center.
1: Tell us a little bit about Tulsa, Oklahoma and why having a community space is important.
2: Yeah. Well. Um one of uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma is interesting in a lot of ways. I think probably a lot of people are not super familiar with the like culture and history of Tulsa, but um Tulsa is a very interesting place because it is sort of at the crossroads of a bunch of different identities. Yes, it has like uh, a white majority populace, but it also is uh, home to the Greenwood District, which is where Black Wall Street was. So we have significant like, uh, black liberationist tendencies here and a, a significant black population. Uh, it's also uh, relatively south in the nation, meaning we have a lot of immigrant populations here. Um, we have a lot of Spanish speakers and people from Central and South America who have settled in Oklahoma. Um And also probably, you know, uh, you know, not to rank them or anything, but the one with maybe some of the most significant history in the area are indigenous Americans. Uh, this is uh, at the intersection of three different tribal uh, lands, uh, perhaps more. Uh, but, it, you know, we've got uh, a lot of indigenous history here as well. So Oklahoma is also like the, you know, where the Trail of Tears ended up. Uh, one of the one of the states where it ended up. Um, we have lots of uh, reservations here. And so all of those politics really get mixed together in this this area. And uh, it makes Tulsa a very, very unique place for constructing um, a revolutionary solidarity. So why is the community center important? Well, the community center is a way for us to establish um, a, a space for a bunch of different uses. Um, one is, of course, a community center allows us to interface with the community. You know, it gives us a space where we can invite people to come, where we can hold our events, where we can also, um, interact with other organizations that need, you know, uh, event spaces, that need storage, that need, uh, access to a bunch of different things and uh the space is much more than that it should be said it is the, the the storage aspect is one aspect but it's also a place where we build a significant amount significant amount of like uh dual power in the process so when we inc- when we create cooperatives the cooperatives are created in the in the space the you know that's like the home office of the cooperative um, We host a constant free store that's there. People can come and take and leave clothes. There are racks of clothes there. Everything is free. There are um, non-perishable uh, uh, goods there as well as refrigerated food. Um, so it can just also be a, play- a pl- way to facilitate transfer of food. Um, it, it's, it, it essentially has become like a mutual aid hub. Um, we have a tool library. We have a fully functioning theory library where people can come check out books like Every time I've ever tried to pitch this to somebody, I realize the list of things is enormous. So maybe that can just get our conversation started.
1: Yeah, I'm curious. You brought up the Tulsa massacre and attack on Black Wall Street. And you talked about how there's different black liberation formations there. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about that. What's the resonance of the history
2: well, I think you'll find that there are um, uh, several different approaches to this history. Um, and, and that's, of course, that's like true broadly for for black liberationist tendencies. You know, you've got all kinds of different approaches. So we have as much a presence as sort of a a, a black capitalist approach, which, of course, makes sense given the history with Black Wall Street. But we've also got like a significant sort of um, uh, uh, sort of black consciousness recognition of, of these these more black radical roots that you might see elsewhere um, there's lots of uh, groups that uh, uh, or like hip hop groups and uh, organizations which uh, speak about all of these tendencies speak about these histories which are trying to uh, bring consciousness to them as well um, there's also just a, a, a lot of activity here in the area during the uh, George Floyd uprisings in, in specific uh, the first BLM wave a little bit, but the second BLM wave very significant here in Tulsa and created a lot of uh, consciousness about white supremacy and things like that. Um, specifically, the the way our organizations have interfaced with these has been a few different ways. Uh, Co- Cooperation Tulsa during that period of time began uh, making inroads with uh, uh, like historically black churches uh, such as the Vernon AME Church and uh, Church of the Restoration. And we built a uh, community gardens cause these are in places that have a uh, food insecurity. And those were extremely valuable, uh, inroads. Um, I mean, I'll shout out like just a few, a few, uh, people, uh, organizations that come to mind right off the bat, just, uh, using this opportunity. Um, one is Tulsa intersectional care network. Um, another one is the Terrence Crutcher foundation. Um, and, uh, yeah, these are, these are both doing significant work. Um, and there's a ton of other ones, you know, there's a hip hop collective called Fire in Little Africa, which also spends a lot of its time bringing attention to these issues. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the, the way that we interacted with this during George Floyd was building democratically controlled community gardens with historically black churches that had more progressive or radical agendas.
1: Talk a little bit about that. What is the goal of, uh, building the gardens is it just to create the uh the gardens themselves or it's the relationships and just talk a little bit more about that
2: sure um you know we have we have all kinds of it kind of depends on how broad it spans on what kinds of thing it could what kind of thing it could become you know uh, at minimum what we're hoping to do is create a site for food sovereignty um uh centered around these these um uh, uh, significant community, uh, spaces, right? And to make it to where those spaces can, uh, create and sustain uh uh, food sovereignty for those areas and so that was just the the basic minimum of it as well as to demonstrate solidarity to create projects on which we could we could collaborate um, and and, in a variety of other of uh, other things but it's also it should be said just like in a more broad sort of revolutionary anarchist or revolutionary communalist uh perspective it's it's a dual power project right when you create democratically controlled or, or uh, things that are controlled through free agreement and consensus, uh, that, and that power is put into the hands of people who have been historically marginalized or oppressed. And it's not us as a vanguard dictating what should be taking place, but instead us saying, no, let's just put a horizontal structure on top of this that can be controlled by the people who are pertinent or, or are in these communities, who are active in these communities. So it's a way as well to construct power for these, communi- uh, for these communities and for those to be structures which we can also interface with and um, hopefully um, bolster our, our solidaric power in the process.
1: That brings us to our next question. You have some land that you all have bought. Some projects are coming out of that. Let's start to the beginning. Um, tell us about, you know, what made you want to buy uh this, you know, couple bit of acres.
2: Yeah, well, um, I'll start by saying that it was we actually didn't purchase it. Um the, the land was uh, Indian allotment land. And uh, the the person who held it wa- had essentially just kind of inherited it through a backward process, where they just had their hands on this two point five acres of land. Um, but it was out, sort of away from. It was like not really far away from the downtown Tulsa, but far enough away where it just wasn't in one of these like you know economic growth zones or whatever. So you know it's kind of out there in a poorer area of town. Uh, but also had been, it was being used as a dump site and the people, the person that owned it did not want to take care of it. Um, and as well that it was in Indian allotment land, um, our organization is, is majority indigenous led and we focus, we focus a lot on, on reconstruction of, of indigenous, um, uh, ways here in, in Tulsa and uh so it just seemed like i think for this person that that gave it to us it just seemed like a good way to um actively promote decolonial attitudes and the reestablishment of an uh, of indigenous ways here in in the in Tulsa we had also been demonstrating of course that we were already interested in ecology and um uh, community gardens and things like that uh, beforehand with all the stuff with the church of the restoration and vernon ame so, they felt that this was, you know, we were a good place to give it. And the only money we ever had to pay was in the transfer, having, you know, getting getting it transferred over to us. So, uh, what is it that we're going to use it for? Well, first of all, we have had to clean up all the dump sites. That was, was step number one. Um, then we had to actually go and mow it and trim everything back and get everything into a usable, uh, form, like, you know, form to actually be used. Uh, at the moment we have begun a composting cooperative on it because that's a relatively low barrier to entry and fits with the goal of social ecology, but we have really big plans for what that land could do. We would like to establish agricultural cooperatives. We'd like to create, um, food forests, uh, using per- permaculture. Uh, uh, we would like to plant, uh, um, uh, indigenous species, uh, that were, that were, that need to be re uh, put back into our local ecology and which were important species to, to indigenous peoples that who were here on this land. Um, but we, we have all kinds of plans for it. Uh, at the moment, what we're trying to do is basically just make sure that it continues being, um, you know, mowed and all of the vegetation is managed and that there's no more dumping on the site and just trying to, uh, uh the next step is us, uh, Ah, uh, building some standing structures and establishing above ground uh, uh, community gardens. And so there's just there's a huge amount to be done with that two point five acres of land. And uh, yeah, yeah, sky's the limit on that.
1: It's really fascinating the idea of, I don't know if land project is the best term here, but you know people using the land and then collectively, Building projects out of that,
2: I think you'll find that this focus on the land is very coordinate with um, uh, uh, groups, organizations, and movements which are connected with decolonial politics or and especially with indigenous thinking. Uh, and there's there's a lot more focus on land on the importance of land. Uh, there's definitely a, a pretty intimate connection to like concepts of of land back and um, establishing Indian sovereignty in the places where they where they've historically resided. But in Cooperation Jackson's sense, it's, you know, black liberation and black decolonial politics, which also focus on land. Um, and in fact, uh, they sort of are very forward that with that in Cooperation Jackson saying they're trying to free the land. Uh, so yes, 100%. It's a very, very important part of what we're doing.
1: How do you see as these projects developing the interconnectedness between having the infrastructure of the space and then the the land that you're working as well? I mean, just in the grand scheme of of projects that you hope to develop, how do you see these two things possibly interfacing in the future?
2: You mean as far as the community center and the 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 2.5 acres of land that we've got? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're already kind of inf- interfacing a little bit because we store supplies, uh, such as lumber and tools. And, um, for example, like water and food that we then bring out to feed people when they need to, when they need to go out there. All that stuff is stored, uh, at the community center. So the community center actually stores so many different things that we use that almost every project we work on stores things at the community center. So Flat Rock is already using the community center as storage space. Um, this is one of the reasons why the community center is extremely important in a broader sense is because if that if that community center were lost we would lose um uh, a, a sort of central hub for all the projects um and, and it interfaces with with similar projects that need space to store their things and to meet and do all of that for other associated organizations as well um in a broader sense in a, in a longer arc of how this how this might all go um i think that it would be quite possible that uh, these would become far more interlinked that um like people might gather at the community space um and you know they might g- uh, go there before they go out to Flat Rock uh decisions about what happens at Flat Rock uh might be made with like a you know i don't know how you put it a central office or something being at the community center um they're they're just Lots of ways that it could be used. For example, if there were meetings and we don't have those above ground air conditioned structures with like ramps and everything at on, on the land, um, the meetings to deal with what happens at Flat Rock, the democratic council structures and everything that would be created for it could be meeting at the center. Um, broadly they're already becoming intertwined and i think that in the future it's it's pretty clear insofar as that both of them remain and are able to continue forward that they really play off of one another in a, in a very useful way
1: well let's talk about how th- your group fits into the wider symbiosis network and you're also talking about how locally you have a federation called the red bud federation talk about both of these sort of organizational ecosystems and how you all fit into
2: that. Yeah, absolutely. Um so uh, the the group that owns uh the the two things that we've been discussing so far uh is Cooperation Tulsa. Cooperation Tulsa is part of the Symbiosis Network. So the Symbiosis Network is a network of organizations based around the principles of social ecology, uh communalism, and uh, libertarian municipalism so organizations that focus around these principles and are able to agree to the points of unity involving unity and diversity and horizontal, uh, horizontalism and 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 these sorts of things, these principles we've discussed so far, um, they can be part of the Symbiosis Federation. Symbiosis Federation mostly has member groups in North America. However, it does span a little bit outside of, say, just the United States. There are some groups in Canada, uh, a little bit in, in, in Central America. And, of course, we have solidarity with the project in Rojava. Uh, and that's because the idea, I mean, first of all, I would consider it one of the most significant liberation, uh, liberatory movements on earth, but even more specifically to cooperation, Tulsa and symbiosis, the ideas of social ecology, um, uh, mostly pushed forward by Murray Bookchin were very influential for uh, uh, the revolutionary project in Rojava. So, um, this is kind of how this is like maybe kind of a primer on symbiosis like kind of its place and and conceptions um, there's also significantly influenced by the zapatistas in mexico uh, and indigenous ideology broadly right indigenous ways of thinking and ways of seeing the world um, cooperation tulsa of that It's definitely – it borrows to all of those things that were just discussed, um, maybe least of which would be what would be called libertarian municipalism. I'm not going to go off on a ramble about that one, but um, more the communalist and social ecologist aspects. So what what that means is we believe that um, uh, the domination of uh, human beings over one another roots uh, or is intertwined with the domination of, of human beings over the rest of nature. So in order for our domination of nature and the damage we're doing to nature to actually be solved, we have to uh, eliminate, abolish the domination between human beings. Uh, You can't just liberate nature while not liberating humanity. And so this makes it a revolutionary ideology. Uh, And so that's very central to Cooperation Tulsa and symbiosis. So as you said, however, there's also a local federation called Redbud Federation, Redbud Federation is a federation more loosely based around horizontal and anti-capitalist principles and focuses itself more around the distribution of mutual aid. And it joins us together with another organization called Scissor Tail Anarchist Organization, which is uh, an, an anarchist organization focused around what's called um, Especifismo, which is a uh, Uh, a praxis an anarchist praxis from uh uruguay and brazil uh and uh so we are heavily influenced by that as well um i i organize with both of those groups with scissor tail anarchist organization and cooperation tulsa um there is a strong partnership between those groups redbud federation so cooperation tulsa i guess you might say is in is in two federations it's in redbud and it's in Symbiosis. Um, symbiosis a much much larger federation uh so yeah because mm-hmm. i know you
1: yourself do a lot of youtube videos and you're talking about anarchist theory libertarian municipalism obviously is its own kind of variant i don't know i'm just curious your thoughts on just the differences and similarities and and approaches i guess
2: and one thing that should be said is libertarian municipalism is most significantly inspired by murray bookchin which of course You'll notice as a commonality among a lot of things discussed with symbiosis. Uh, Marie Bookchin is the key thinker there. But libertarian municipalism is something that you might find more or less in different member groups of symbiosis. Uh, libertarian municipalism is kind of like broadly a politics of, of the municipality, right? You can kind of hear it in its name. Uh, which is to say it might have a lot of focus on the city as, as a, a as a, a useful grouping that we should be organizing within. So uh, I think you'll find that that is kind of broadly held in symbiosis, um, and the libertarian aspect is to say that in doing so, everything goes from the bottom up. We're not trying to create a vanguard model where we, you know, just have a centralized above, above and below conception just over the city. That's not what's going on. So. Then that can take a bunch of different forms. So you might notice that some people who are more focused on libertarian municipalism have a little bit more of a, an electoral approach and that they are like okay with trying to get people in in smaller you know, um, uh, city uh, scale uh, positions of state power and then hoping they can use those positions to reform regulations and laws to be more amenable to the sorts of projects we've already discussed. Um, you'll find that at one point, Cooperation Jackson had a history of doing that with Lumumba, and that there is some history of well, as well of this uh, elsewhere. That being said, uh, where is the split? Where is the disagreement? Well, Cooperation Tulsa doesn't pursue any electoral projects. We don't involve ourselves in electoral projects. We don't promote any sort of, uh, e- elections or voting in any particular way. Um, we're never going to run our own candidates. Uh, that's not our approach to this. So that's why I said that we don't really emphasize the libertarian municipalist, municipalist aspect as much. Uh, what has been discussed here about trying to reconnect with community, about the value of creating these strong communities and having strong connections in the social sense, uh, as well as seeing that as being the position where we can create power. Uh, is is mostly about that communalist aspect that's kind of one of the main things about what defines communalism and then the social ecologist aspect is as i already described it's a sort of uh, understanding of our relation to nature and uh, uh the uh, how domination is is part of all of that as well uh so yeah i would say you'll find some that are more libertarian municipalists than others uh, ours, I would say, is probably one of the lesser examples of libertarian municipalism, only because Bookchin involved some, uh, concessions to electoral politics there. So, insofar as the, you also kind of brought anarchism into that discussion, you know, part of the reason I'm so opposed to that is because I am an anarchist. Um, and, uh, Murray Bookchin was as well for most of his life. And, uh, you know, that's a broader discussion, whether he was or wasn't at the end of his life. But, Uh, I don't think that electoral politics can work. I don't think that using the enemy structure, asking for power from the enemy structure is is a useful way to proceed. So, uh, yeah, I hope that answered your question.
1: Just to kind of close this out, you know, one of the things we've been asking a lot of people on the show is that in the wake of the rebellion, um, you know, the need to kind of pull people into projects and build long-term infrastructure, and organizational capacity i'm curious are the projects that we've been discussing is that something that you've seen a success with have you been able to kind of pull new people into this organizing
2: oh yeah yeah definitely um it should be said that i you know i i promote this uh uh this revolutionary concept I that i would call prefiguration uh, uh, broadly in my own work in the essays that I write in the video essays I create and so on um, and uh, in my own work it's what I think uh, demonstrates the most effectiveness that being said it is a praxis that we are trying to carry out um uh, a new within within these conditions and one that has to take into account um uh previous attempts to build different kinds of power uh, recognizing where the shortcomings uh of the, of those are going to be one thing i have to say is i think we're at a stage of the process where people need examples they need a demonstration of how that that we can build something which is actually a positive project which actually gives them a a demonstration of the recreation of community, that gives them a demonstration that they can be re-empowered in this process and not in a not a short-term sense uh, where they just uh, attend a protest or or uh, you know happen upon a riot or something and then go home and uh, just you know that's it that's the end of their project but instead this sort of like continual construction of the power of themselves and those around them and the organizations and and all, all these the broader uh uh capacity of of a large group of people to act together and I think that what I would say is this was uh historically embodied in unionism. Uh the, the, the attempt to build unions and to construct trade union structures and uh in, in a variety of ways was, in my opinion, a dual power project. Uh the power was the union. Uh, and it itself became a sort of entity that moved forward and, and self-perpetuated and then allowed a broader revolutionary project to take place after that sort of scaffolding was created. So what we're doing here is we're not rejecting the union. We're saying that. You know, yes, of course, uh, organizing within the economic sphere is important, and it has to be part of the project—a crucial part of the project. But all kinds of things have to be part of the project. We also need to know to know how to administer the land, uh, or or to just live with the land. Uh, we have to also understand how to make decisions together. How to deal with uh, grievances, how to, uh, to, you know, uh, enact a a transformative, a process of transformative justice, um, how to create a new society and new social conditions among ourselves. And what I'm finding is I get communications from people all over the place, all the time, asking how they can reproduce what Cooperation Tulsa and Cooperation Jackson are doing. I think that people are so hungry for a, an example of, of, of the positive construction of mass power rather than a purely negative or deconstructive politics.
1: Well, thanks for joining us. Do you want to tell us once again where people can go to help out with the fundraiser? And again, like w- what does that go towards?
2: Yeah, so um, I, uh, I guess I'll just kind of l- lay it out here. Uh, the fundraiser, uh, we have three different platforms where we are soliciting donations. Uh, they are Open Collective. Uh, GoFundMe and Patreon. Okay, so, so I should emphasize what we're really trying to do is get monthly recurring donations because that means that we don't have to go begging for money again. You know, I don't have to come on. It's going down, uh, and 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 just talk about asking for money for my projects. And maybe we could talk about all kinds of other interesting things as well. Uh, but open collective if you go to our open collective link um, don't forget to if you're wanting to be a recurring donor don't for- forget to click the monthly option and uh, common donation amounts are like between five and twenty dollars um, if you can afford more please give more uh, and if you can only afford a one-time donation of course we would be happy to take a one-time donation as well Uh, the other one for recurring donations is patreon which of course uh, most people are probably familiar with and uh, if that would be easier for you if you already do patreon and uh, that platform is just familiar then we have a patreon and if you are most comfortable perhaps with just giving a bulk donation to uh, something that is very familiar uh like gofundme we have a gofundme as well so um yeah, if, just to, just to make clear, what we're trying to do right now is hit this, is, is hit a goal of $1,800 a month of recurring donations. We are currently at about $1,100 a month of recurring donations. And we want to hit that because that will make it to where we will have the money to just pay the basic monthly bills for our stuff. We will just not have to, if we, if we, ask for money or we do a fundraiser it would be to pay for starting new things we're just trying to get it to the point where we have our basic costs covered so when you do a recurring donation you are funding the sustainability of a broader dual power project um so i just to, to anybody who's like considering doing so i just want to thank you i appreciate you enormously um and uh yeah, I, I appreciate everybody for, for listening uh to me talk about these projects.
0: There's no petition we can sign to end poverty Or to make no word with teeth I know there's not enough windows on this planet to break us free But maybe one would be just enough for some dignity
3: I helped with the Boise Pride defense.
4: Yeah, hi. From Boise, my pronouns are they, them.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We're going to be talking about what all happened at Boise Pride and sort of the larger context there with the far right, uh, the Republican Party, how people are pushing back. But just to kind of get us started, for those that are outside of Boise, Idaho, and that region in general... Why don't you tell us your initial thoughts? Like, what do folks need to know about the region overall before we kind of get into everything else?
3: Yeah, yeah. So, I guess Idaho, it has a little bit more of an extreme far right than a lot of places do. And the far right here is pretty well connected with the national right wing media sphere. Yeah, it's a lot to deal with, but um, we have a pretty good community of people who are willing to stand up against it
1: tell us what happened in the lead up to pride um and folks listening to this uh probably have been reading on it's going down like uh there's groups like the idaho liberty dogs which have like gone out and harassed people eamon bundy's group is pretty deep out there they've done like a lot of actions at the Capitol. groups like the idaho liberty dogs were harassing people that were doing the uh tent encampment that was going on for several months, but just tell us specifically with pride, sort of like what happened in the lead up to the actual event.
3: What happened with the lead up basically was, you know, we kind of expected that some backlash would happen just because of the climate nationally around, you know, the narrative around LGBTQ people. So it all started when, Idaho Liberty Dogs posted about the kids' drag event. They basically were trying to frame it as if it was, like, you know, some kind of sexual, like, adult show. And the kids were in danger, and we have to, like, stand up to it right now. And once that happened, it started getting picked up by more and more right-wing people. You know, first it was more local, like the Idaho GOP, Posted something about it, and it started, yeah, getting more and more national. Lives of TikTok picked up on it. Dave Riley, who's this, you know, neo-Nazi guy in northern Idaho, started boosting it. And as it picked up more and more steam, some of the sponsors of Pride started dropping out. And that's around when, you know, we decided to stand up against it because we're just not okay with this kind of narrative. Going around, but yeah, after sponsors started dropping out, Boise Pride announced that they had actually canceled the drag show. And we kind of figured that they weren't going to be satisfied with that. And as we expected, they decided to go after the drag story hour, which was happening earlier that day. And yeah, just, you know, blew up to a national level that started getting extremely concerning.
4: I would say that it made us all pretty nervous, but it also kind of brought us all together. Um, by us, I mean a lot of different leftist groups in the area. Somebody made a flyer that went around to organize the event a little bit better. Um, you know, to get everybody to show up and you know bring umbrellas, that kind of stuff.
3: Actually, something kind of crazy happened: is this flyer started spreading around? you know, different communities. It wasn't meant to be posted online, but the Idaho Liberty Dogs somehow got their hands on that flyer and then they posted it on their Facebook page, which, you know, they thought it was some kind of big win for them. But
1: <laughs> This is a flyer that said, like, come out and defend Pride, essentially.
3: Yeah, yeah. It said to, like, bring umbrellas and basically that we are going to try and block them from being able to access pride so people wouldn't have to look at them and deal with them, which is exactly what happened, which is funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, even though they knew about our plans prior to what happened, like it really didn't change it. I mean, we kind of figured with the way it was being shared, like people were going to find out anyways. And uh, once it came out, a lot of the local organizations that have followings here ended up posting, you know, a different flyer publicly to the whole community to say, come out and help us defend Pride. So,
4: Yeah, if anything, it just made us stronger definitely. and more united.
3: I
1: just want to go back to the initial kind of like hubbub they tried to make around the... Um, the event itself, cause they, cause they kind of try to walk this line, like, we don't hate LGBTQ people. We're just against the groomers, quote unquote, which is, I mean, total. Bullshit. I mean, obviously their entire grift yeah. is that they're trying to associate queer and trans folks with this idea that if you are that inherently you're doing something Messed up to children and that's how you yourself got that way and all these conspiracy theories wrapped up into that. But talk about the event itself because it was supposed to be basically a kids event in which children were going to basically sing songs and perform, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. It was, it was supposed to be basically just a theatrical event where kids dressed up and sang songs and the way they portrayed it was Basically that they were going to be like child strippers and just horribly like, you know, 1950s homophobic rhetoric. And um, sadly, you know, Boise Pride gave into that narrative and dropped it. But the, um, the other event that they started going after next was the Drag Story Hour, which was basically just, you know, people reading stories in drag, which they portrayed it the same exact way.
1: Yeah, somebody dressed up like David Bowie reading Goodnight Moon is going to like destroy the Yeah. Destroy the country somehow. It's like <laughs> I don't know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> if you haven't seen one of these performances, you can go on YouTube and check out what happens. The Daily Show actually did a really funny coverage on this. If you want to check that out. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's like you said, it's people in drag reading stories about, you know, diversity and acceptance. Two kids, there's nothing sexual about it, and
4: it's not so like
1: risque. And I mean, what's, what's also funny too is, I mean, if you know anything about drag, I mean, the the purpose of drag is to perform and sing songs and put on a show. There's, I mean, I suppose like some of it in some instances could be sexual, but all the times I've seen it, it's, it's not been some like thing where it's like, it's not like burlesque or something, you know, it's like about
3: performance
1: and appearance.
3: Any kind of theater, it can be sexual or, You know, it cannot be sexual. Like, it really depends on the performance. Obviously, they weren't going to do some kind of sexual performance for children. That's really just the kind of violent rhetoric that I think they intentionally use because they know it's going to rile people up and get their base out there angry and violent, basically.
1: Yeah, I just think the real sick thing is that it's done under the auspices of protecting the children as if they're, like, somehow you know, on the side of these young LGBTQ youth who want to do this. I mean, this is their event. In reality, they're putting them in danger by putting this, like, really specific spotlight on them, you know, flooding them with death threats, shutting the event down. I mean, that puts them more in danger, of course, than anything.
3: Yeah, I mean, they definitely don't care about them. Like, they specifically will attack, like, young trans people, and go after them at events, they they definitely don't care about them. And one of the ironic things about it, too, is they had a like, Catholic prayer circle event at the show where they were, like, praying for the children. And, um, yeah, right outside of Pride. And It's just kind of ironic seeing the Catholic Church pretending to care about children. And, you know, maybe they should be looking to their own faith leaders.
1: <laughs> there was uh, sponsors that pulled out. You want to talk a little bit about that?
3: There were, I think, about six sponsors that pulled out, um, CapEd, which is a local credit union, CWI, which is a local um, college, Idaho Power dropped out, Zion's Bank, ICCU, which is Idaho Central Credit Union, another credit union, and then a local bar called 13th Street Pub. They all dropped out and... Release public statements about it. it is it's really frustrating seeing this happen because most of this was pushed by a group of about 20 people to their like maybe not even 20 like 10 people the Idaho Liberty Dogs to their 13,000 followers and they basically went on a mass emailing campaign to email these local businesses and they gave into the pressure of a pretty small minority I think It just goes to show how small of a minority they are based on how many people actually showed up to the event because it really wasn't a lot. It was extremely underwhelming. It ended up just being a really good day for us, a really fun day.
1: (laughs) Well, tell us about what all happened uh, the day of.
4: Yeah, so we went into the day, you know, pretty nervous, didn't really know what to expect. um, But we were prepared, I would say, for anything. It felt pretty autonomous um everybody was communicating really well um we were kind of on the lookout for like anybody cuz we didn't really know who was going to show up if it was just going to be the Liberty Dogs which i think most of us are not really afraid of but we were you know worried if their promise of 300 plus proud boys was going to show up or any other uh white purposes type of group um luckily we really only mainly dealt with the Idaho Liberty Dogs about i would say 10 of them showed up. Yeah. Um, You know, so we kept eyes on them while the, during the beginning part of the the day of pride, which was the parade up until, and um, that's when we uh, just went straight to the Idaho Liberty dogs and pulled out our umbrellas and blocked them from being able to even like see who was going into pride. Um, That's when a bunch of other people from different leftist groups kind of joined in with us um, and it was just really beautiful to see honestly all of us just standing there together uh blocking out the hate there was lots of young people that joined in on us um that would just really kind of like mess with the Idaho liberty dogs which was Really fun to watch.
3: Yeah, yeah. And there, there were a few, like, lone super radical white supremacists, like people from the White Lives Matter group. And, uh, yeah, a couple different neo-Nazis that showed up. It seemed like they didn't really have any numbers. But, I mean, I think that's the, the audience that the Idaho Liberty Dogs is going for when they're pushing this kind of rhetoric. They're trying to get the more radical people out there that are going to possibly do violence or, you know, whatever their plan is. But it really wasn't nearly as many people as we thought they were going to be. Um, we, we did figure that it probably wasn't going to be 300 Proud Boys because that's just ridiculous. We've never seen more than like six or seven of them in Idaho <laughs> at any event. So the whole thing was really overblown by them and by the media and by the GOP. You, you mentioned how like a lot of influencers
1: pick this up, like libs of TikTok, which has a massive audience. You mentioned people like, uh, Dave Riley, who is a white nationalist, Groyper troll who marched in Charlottesville. He's now in Idaho. He unsuccessfully tried to run for, I think, school board or something like that. Yeah. And then also people like Vincent James, who actually we just learned today there was an article that came out that Michael Dell, the My Pelo CEO, CEO has been <laughs> funneling him money. So I mean, people with you know sizable backing and platforms were definitely pushing this thing. You also mentioned the GOP. My understanding is that they actually put out something that encouraged people to even protest these events, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, they put out basically a call to action to come out and show support for the Idaho Liberty Dogs and protest pride. Um,
4: Which every supporter that we saw come up and, like, watch what was happening, they all ended up leaving pretty shortly after.
3: Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of people that came up, and you can even see it in some of their videos.
4: Their live streams.
3: Yeah, their live streams where, like, someone would walk up and mention, like, oh, I thought more people would be here. Kind of funny. I guess the Idaho GOP recently got taken over by someone named Dorothy Moon who is super far right, has ties to Proud Boys, has ties to Liberty Dogs. So they're pretty radical fascists controlling the Idaho GOP now. So it wasn't really surprising to us to see them boosting this.
1: I just think it's notable that they're essentially following the lead of these fascist formations and echoing it, you know, like actively telling people to, to go out and protest, which... I mean, um, I haven't necessarily seen that from, you know, other local Republican parties.
3: Yeah, I feel like what's happening in Idaho is almost like a playground for fascists around the country figuring out ways to, like, take over their local GOP and, like, influence the, you know, the state that they're in. It's pretty scary to see
1: yeah, I just think that's why it's interesting that despite all of these people with massive platforms, they didn't really get that many people out. And also, I read that this was the largest pride there,
3: and like it sounded
1: like thirty, thirty-three years.
4: Yeah, it was a really good
3: turnout. Yeah, I think three thousand people showed up. It was really big, so it didn't really affect anyone from coming out.
1: <laughs> Do you all have any thoughts on like just that dynamic that like they can scream so loud? And obviously they have an audience. I mean, there's people there that support them, but yet that didn't translate into boots on the ground.
3: A lot of what's happened with the Idaho Liberty dogs and a lot of the right wing groups here ever since, you know, the George Floyd uprising, like they have big numbers back then. And since, since, you know, the action for them slowed down. I think it's their numbers have dwindled, but the members there are, like, more radical than they were back then. So I think it is, like, a small number of people with a pretty big platform, but they don't represent what the people of Idaho believe, even if their voices sound, you know, so loud, and they, like, drown out other voices and influence businesses. It's really not, you know... people in Idaho it's not what they believe in my opinion
1: yeah even the businesses dropping out I think that just shows you like how you know wish-washy these corporations are that try to like align themselves with progressive causes or whatever it just shows you this kind of like facade of you know quote-unquote woke capital is is just that I mean it's all a business strategy and if they get a certain amount of pushback, they're going to go the other way because they think that'll help them.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think they like they saw all the buzz on social media and all the articles and the GOP, and they probably just freaked out and thought, like, oh, we're going to lose customers, so they dropped out. But I think in reality a lot more people are mad that they dropped out <laughs> than they probably expected. I mean, the, the whole reason we had Pride in uh, September was because of a business decision, because they did it last year because of COVID. And I guess they made more money because they got different sponsors. So that's why they moved it to this month. So the whole thing is just, you know, capitalist operation.
1: Talk about what happened on the day of, you know, people went out there. We saw really nice photos of people with, um, uh I don't know how to describe it. They had very... Co- wings. Yeah, colorful yeah costumes, I guess, and they had, they had wings. Uh, just talk about how they basically defended the space from the Fari people that did show up.
4: One, also, there was a, a, a furry bat there with ginormous wings. Um, they were awesome. Uh, basically, our goal was just to block out the negativity, you know, like visually and also what they were saying. But we also wanted to kind of keep them preoccupied. So a lot of us would kind of engage in conversation with whoever was, um, you know, taking up space, whether it was a street preacher or the Idaho Liberty Dogs. You know, we were just kind of keeping them preoccupied while others were, you know, keeping an eye on the rest of the, uh, like, Perimeter of Pride.
3: What was also really nice to see is a lot of people just walking by that had no clue this was happening joined in with us. I think, you know, just because they're like, yeah, we don't want these people here. Like, we like what you're doing, and we want to protect our community. It was really beautiful to see.
1: Yeah, I think that's the other amazing thing about this that is very much so a, a miscalculation on their part, is that they are forcing a segment of the population that for several years has kind of wrung its hands and like... Like, well, I don't like the Nazis, but I don't know if I'd go to a protest. I feel like a lot of the folks now that are sort of, you know, applauding quote-unquote Antifa are the progressive liberals that before were kind of very not wanting to get in the mix, and now they're kind of being forced into that position because the right has gone so hard after Pride and the LGBTQ
4: community.
3: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, in 2020, they stayed far away from our community, you know, just because of, like, the images of the uprising on the media making it look violent. And I guess they had that, I don't know if cognitive dissonance is the right word. It wasn't really attacking them, but now the right's coming for them, and they're coming for, like, everybody, basically. They don't think they can't ignore it anymore. And I hope more people start to realize that because it's pretty serious, Situation out here The fascists are going real hard
4: <laughs> I'd also just like to add that we were pretty inspired By other cities Like New York City um, And also Denver I know in New York City They did um They actually used the rainbow umbrellas To help It was protecting people getting abortions Yeah they used it as They used the umbrellas to what is it called New To bring people into the abortion clinics Basically Yeah, yeah they were Parenthood
3: they were helping Escalating escorts. Them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we were inspired by seeing that and a couple other protests where they were using umbrellas and it was kind of just like a random idea that someone brought up and it took off. And I really hope that more people like see that resistance is something anyone can do and more people get inspired by what we've done, what other people have done because it's you know, you just got to go out there and start bringing people together and your community will help you out and your community will inspire other people to help out.
1: Out of this experience, do you have any lessons or anything that you'd like to, you know, put forward to other folks? I mean, there's lots of other Pride events coming up. I know I think there's something going on in Boston this weekend. Um, Would you, you know, leave people with any sort of advice?
3: Yeah, I think... What I got out of this is no matter how bleak it looks and how scary like the voices are and how big the media pushes against you, you know, they're really not as strong as they think they are. And we all have very strong communities and I think everyone should go out and help protect their local communities because it's really important right now to push up against this.
4: Yeah. Yeah. For real. Just being there is just really important. I think it's the best thing that you can do to resist the just showing up, you know, start the thing, do the thing, talk to your friends. Um, yeah. And also it will, it will be fun in the end. (laughs) Okay. We are
1: back again for another week. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to start off by talking about Biden's, uh, speech, which apparently he now agrees that fascism is a thing that needs to be confronted. Or semi-fascism, as he calls it. I don't know what that means. <laughs> semi-fascism. Uh, but yeah, he just gave this speech. This kind of comes after this wave of so-called dark Brandon memes and all this stuff on the internet, which I don't know how much we even want to kind of give that credit as part of like what's happening in the real world. But I do think it's <laughs> interesting to start off contrasting uh the push that they gave uh, the State of the Union speech, which we did a whole breakdown mm-hmm. of. Uh, when you compare that to this stump speech, which was his address to the nation that was advertised, uh, this comes after the um money that they just gave back for the student loans. Uh, he touted essentially that covid 's over like we 've defeated it you know we 've kind of risen up from the lockdowns and stuff, and now america 's economy's booming back, and everything 's awesome. But uh, fascism has a knife to the throat of the republic, and we've got to, like, rip it away. And the way to do that, of course, is to vote for Democrats. And this is essentially the marching orders he's giving his supporters going into the midterms. And, of course, if you look back at the State of the Union speech, there was, of course, no mention of that whatsoever. And that happened, like, right after Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, And some of those people had like gone to a white nationalist conference and that really was in the news and stuff like that. And of course, there was no mention of January 6th at all during the State of the Union speech. And you fast forward to now when it's being presented as this huge threat to the Republic. Of course, the irony is, is that the Democrats are presenting themselves like as the only thing that can save the United States, you know, much like Trump. Like, I'm the only one that can save you. Uh But, of course, the question must be asked, like, what has the state done <laughs> in the past couple years since January 6th now uh, to do anything to stem the tide of rising authoritarianism? We've seen calls for uh giving more power to the security state. There's been talk of mm. creating, like, new committees and stuff within, like, the governing apparatus of the Department of Justice and the FBI and things like that. I know we're extremely critical and everyone else should be about giving the state more (laughs) power to repress people and movements. That's always going to come back on anarchists, black liberation, native struggles, the left in general, much harder than the far right. And, you know, even within the past couple of years, we've seen, you know, the thousands of people that were arrested during the uprising, uh, face much harsher penalties than the folks that have been arrested for January six, and there's just, of course, much more, many more people that were arrested during the uprising.
5: Yeah, uh, I think it marks. There's actually kind of a shift happening here, and it's, I mean, it's a shift that, as you mentioned, uh, I think it makes sense to see in light of the student loan announcement from last week. So, there's been a something happening within Democratic Party political operative world. Um And it seems to me that there's been a recognition recently of something that, to those of us that have been doing any analysis of the political terrain for any number of years in the past, I think is really obvious, but the desires of the people who vote Democrats and the actions of the Democratic Party in relation to the Republican Party are deeply, deeply in odds with each other. What I mean by that is that you take 2020, um, where we, you know, very consistently were talking about how people weren't voting for Joe Biden. People were voting against Donald Trump, right? They, they were taking an oppositional stance, right? And in the years prior to that, there had been these calls for Democrats to do literally anything to try and even just slow things down, to disrupt things, like literally anything, right? Um, that during the Obama years... There were calls amongst, you know, the left of the Democratic Party to forget about bipartisanism and just go do the thing that people elected you to do. Right. Go build social services. Go give people universal health care like that's what they voted for you for. Right. And early in the Biden administration, there was also this language of, well, we just need to come to the middle and we all need to work together and blah, 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 blah. And no one's about that now. Um, it's not. Just, I mean, I think in the world of um, mainstream political punditry, that is a horrible tragedy that the Democrats have decided that confrontationalism might be the right way to go. Um, but to mostly everybody else, that looks, it seems, if you're going by what's online, looks a lot to them like an act of political self-defense. So the dark Brandon meme is really interesting in this way because what it does, it's not just a Biden meme. It is a Biden meme, which presents Joe Biden almost as this, um, powerful character opposing Republican authoritarianism. Sometimes he's portrayed as like Che Guevara. Sometimes he's portrayed with AK-47s. Sometimes he's just got laser eyes, you know, some, whatever. The whole point is that they're trying to portray Joe Biden not as this like kind of aloof, you know, kind of incompetent, sort of entirely uninspirational, moderate Democrat. Instead, they want to portray Joe Biden as this like champion of the people who's willing to stand up to the Republican Party and fight fascism and so on, so on. Right. And so all of these things we have to think about working together at the moment. The student loan announcement, was about creating this sort of, I mean, very superficial, but creating a sort of superficial indication that, you know, the White House has heard you and they really do care about the things you care about, right? Whether or not that's true. This whole speech was about, it was about signaling largely to millennials, like we understand that you think that fascism is a problem. And we're now going to say that we also think that fascism is a problem. Right. And so look at us. We're on the same page as you. Right. But all of this is functionally about the midterms, and all of this really comes down to something which the Democratic Party does a lot, has a very long history of doing, which is the Democratic Party will, this this cycle happens frequently, they will realize that they are in a very different place than their supporters are, say, about environmentalism, or police brutality, or civil rights in the 1960s, right? And they will decide that, okay, well, what they're going to do is they're going to become the entity that is identified with that issue. Forget everybody else that's been working on it. Forget all the grassroots activity. Forget all the people that have been organizing their communities. Forget all of that. When the democratic party gets involved, they get involved Their involvement come promises to moderate organizers of political power, right? They come with money. They come with staff and very quickly come to dominate things like the labor movement or come to dominate organizations like the Sierra Club, right? Very, very, very quickly, right? Even human rights activism is dominated by kind of Democratic Party-aligned liberals in the United States, right? All of that is sort of this attempt of Democrats to um, co-opt the moderate wings of all of these social movements and to kind of bring them into their fold. And so what are we seeing here? Well, it's not that Joe Biden decided that universities should be free, Right. It's that he decided that without changing anything about tuition, without changing anything about how universities are structured, without changing anything about their role in American capitalism or anything like that, we're just going to make so you don't pay your student loans back. Right. We're not going to actually support people who are fighting fascism. What we're going to say is that American Storming Normandy is fighting fascism and that that's anti-fascism and that we're going to now identify as being anti-fascists. Right. What they're doing there is they are trying to pick off whatever energy is left from the large number of liberals that over the last five years have found any level of sympathy with us. And they're trying to bring those people back into the fold of the Democratic Party. That is what this is all about.
1: Well, they're also recognizing that anger over attacks on reproductive freedom and LGBTQ Mm plus rights is... A thing that's animating the base. And this is their way of speaking to it. Um, Yeah. (laughs) The ironic thing is, of course, is that they've had a lot of stuff at their disposal that they could have actually done to stop this. I mean, first of all, Mm -hmm. they could have codified all this into civil rights law um you know, decades ago, they could have done this under Obama. They could have done this under Biden. They refused to do that. Mm-hmm. They could have abolished the filibuster and expanded the Supreme Court. They refused to do that. They refused to do. That. I mean, this is the same thing that people were so angry at them several months ago, and that's why Biden's approval rating was in part so low. It was because people were saying, "Look, mm-hmm. like." We voted you into office with this mandate, you know, with the expectation that you were going to at least preserve these basic things, and you can't even do that. Like, you are so useless, and now the Democrats are doing a a complete reversal – and basically mm-hmm. capitalizing on that anger and fear over what the Demo- the republicans have done and saying like if you don't vote for us then we're going to have fascism it's like well who allowed them to get to this point i mean they yeah. haven't they haven't stormed the offices of power you know they haven't stormed the bastille and now you know taken power like they've done this through the democratic institutions you know Mm -hmm. even though they've, you know, manipulated and, like, schemed and stuff and, oh, tried to overthrow the government along the way. But, I mean, they've done this through getting their folks in on the Supreme Court and then doing it through the institutions. And, in fact, their ultimate goal, Mm -hmm. even though they want to use the far right to, you know, get there to a certain degree, I mean, basically what they want to do is they want to install a new set of electors so if they have elections Mm -hmm. in the future that they want to contend, that they can bring those people up, you know, and use the Mm -hmm. existing system to basically rubber stamp the people that they like so they can continue forward regardless of whatever elections say. So... And again, like, you know, where has the democratic pushback been around redistricting? Where has democratic pushback been around the hundreds of thousands of people that have been kicked off the voting rolls, largely folks of color? I mean, this stuff has been going on for years. Like, do we even hear them yeah. talk? Like, have we even heard Biden talk about this stuff once? You know, it's like, no. isn't no. this, isn't this the stuff that they could actually be fighting in the courts or they could at least be talking about, pointing it out? I mean, why isn't, Biden using the bully pulpit of the presidency to call out these things, which at their very basic level are just, you know, completely structurally racist and attacking the very base of the people that allowed Biden to come into office to begin with. I mean, it just seems like so asinine and stupid and just kind (laughs) of like throwing up your hands and allowing your, Voters to evaporate in front of you, like there doesn't even seem to be a a desire to hold on to the people that they had to fight so hard to begin with, and I think that's why there's so much anger at the Democrats, rightfully so. And I mean, Mm -hmm. we would argue that Mm -hmm. you know the two-party system is just a sham, and needs to we need to focus on building up our own capacity as a material force outside of electoral politics, but. Again, like, we need to remember why people were so mad at the Democrats to the point where now they're trying to basically get in front of that anger and say, like, well, if you don't vote Mm -hmm. for us, there's going to be fascism. It's like you're the one that allowed this to basically happen to begin with, and your only response is, like, basically more cops, more more DHS. I mean, none of that stuff Mm -hmm. hindered the rise of the far right. If anything, it – focused on the left and then that allowed it to grow even further. And not only that, but I mean the neoliberal policies that Biden has pushed is just going to further uh, entrench levels of inequality, which are going to allow things like Trumpism and American fascism and Christian theocracy to appear to some people, you know, a sizable amount of the country. As a viable alternative, I mean, as crisis becomes deeper, the far right is going to present itself as an alternative to the status quo, which in the United States is neoliberalism. Yeah. Well,
5: and I mean, we've, what we're really, what we're seeing here again is, is a shift in the way that the Democratic Party, or at least the Biden wing of the Democratic Party, wants to relate to the Republican Party publicly. Right. So I think. Anyone that pays attention to DC knows that, uh, there's a level of artifice to political conflict that happens inside DC, like parliamentary conflict. Um, all those people go out and hang out after work anyways, right? Um, there's tons of stories of this. Um, there's all these stories recently about Joe Manchin's boat in Georgetown and how he has people from all different political tendencies there. That's really normal, right? That the conflict exists as a patrician thing within electoralism, within liberal democracy. The entire idea is that really what's supposed to happen is that the parliamentary system is supposed to play the role of all different sort of avenues of political conflict, that instead of protests, you have elections. Instead of riots, you have elections. Instead of, you know, big fights in the street, you have elections, right? And the parliamentary system is supposed to play that role Now, the problem is, is that, of course, that enshrines a certain way of engaging in politics that is entirely discursive and enshrines the power of the legislative body as something which exists above and beyond and sort of infallible in relation to politics, right? Which is an absurd position. And so when we run into a situation now where, like, the legislative bodies have failed, and that's become incredibly obvious, and the attempts to sort of drift back to the center through compromise and bipartisanship have failed um, for, you know, really obvious reasons. I think partially it's Democratic Party incompetence and also Republican intransigence is sort of making that happen. Um, but at that point, what is left except anger? Right? Actions outside of the parliamentary structure. And that involves street protests. That involves political conflict, right? What the Democrats are trying to do here. Is they're trying to align themselves. I mean, this is a, this is a tension they've been trying to navigate ever since Trump got elected, right? Which is that on some level, there's a recognition that they have that the things that we do as anarchists and radicals have a level of popularity amongst their base. And that ultimately a lot of people within the Democratic party base look at us as though maybe a little bit extreme, Definitely people are motivated by the right things. And as time goes on, the argument that we're extremists disappears more and more. And so what's being seen a lot is that Democrats as a whole, Democratic voters, want political conflict. They want to win against the Republican Party. They want to destroy the Republican Party. They're not interested in working with the Republican Party that shift for Joe Biden is a 90 degree turn. And we watched that happen with this speech, right? Um, he literally shifted his entire politics publicly
1: in, you know, 10 minutes. He was also very clear that he didn't want to destroy the Republican party. That there was, right. he said the majority of Republicans were actually really good. It's just that the MAGA Republicans are bad and they're the ones that basically are bullying all the good Republicans into being <sighs> bad. Also, just the reality of, you know, politics, like democratic politics, it is reduced to essentially like winning votes off of basic rights and freedoms being taken Mm -hmm. away to Mm -hmm. energize the base. Like, oh, great. They took away like reproductive freedom. Like a lot of people are going to die and like not have access to basic health care. Amazing. Now now we'll actually get elected again because people will have a reason Mm -hmm. to vote Mm -hmm. for us. But if we get into office, what are we going to do? Oh, nothing. Okay. Nothing. Well, then we'll have Absolutely to, nothing. then we'll have to wait for the next thing to come around to like energize the base again. I mean, eventually that strategy is going to like, I think come to a head, but also we're going to see yeah. the emergence like we saw, you know, with the attacks on Roe v. Wade and the, you know, wave of attacks on LGBTQ plus people. We're going to see actual material conflict. I mean, you know, the past mm-hmm. couple of weeks, we've seen walkouts. We've seen armed demonstrations. You know, in defense of the LGBTQ community, we saw hundreds of people out in Modesto protesting the so-called straight pride event, which is organized by white nationalists. Um, I mean, we're seeing people push back, and I think that's having a much bigger impact, um, on the far right than anything the state is doing or talking about. Yeah. Well, and, and
5: I think one of the things the Democratic Party is struggling with is something that, interestingly enough, the Trump campaign kind of hit on, although they were, uh I mean, laughable in the way that they did it. But, you know, the Trump campaign in 2020 was at least partially based on trying to convince various constituencies of traditional Democratic voters that the Democratic Party doesn't do anything for them. And the problem that the Democrats had is that they were right. You know, there's a reason that, you know, the white working class union worker in Youngstown, Ohio, voted for Donald Trump after two decades of voting Democrat in a district where the House rep is a Democrat. Right? It's because the Democratic Party did nothing for them. Nothing. That they asked them for their support. They asked their unions for their support. They asked them to go out and flyer and register voters and do all of that, and these union workers did all of that. They did. And they still lost their jobs and they still end up living in poverty, right? You know, you look at communities of color in the United States who very traditionally vote Democrat. Um, but at the same time that they're voting Democrat, there's this kind of new rise of a sort of civil rights movement that's happening because things in America are so screwed up when it comes to, you know, questions of things like race and political power. And that was the problem that the Democratic Party told everyone it was going to solve. They were going to pass the Civil Rights Act. They were going to have a Department of Justice that actually enforced the Civil Rights Act. They were going to, you know, end Jim Crow and blah, 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 blah. And that was supposed to make everything better. That was supposed to solve the problems of American colonialism by, you know, ending the Jim Crow system. And it didn't because that problem is way deeper. And so I think what's happening is the Republican party was able to sort of capitalize a bit on that. But then they themselves didn't do anything to help anybody. And so, like, one of the big hazards of, you know, in 2016 Trump took on this, like, well, if you vote for me, I'll get you your job back. Well, the big hazard there is you actually have to get people's jobs back then. Um, And they didn't. And so, what's happening now is you've got this sort of electorate which is abandoned, which doesn't feel like anybody's fighting for them, which doesn't really have anywhere to go, which aren't you know, MAGA people or like, you know, kind of activist Democrats where just like people who traditionally vote Democrat. And the reality is, is that they are responding to the fact that the Democratic Party has done absolutely nothing to make their lives better. Um, I live in a place where that's true.
1: I think the majority of people in the United States are like that. I mean, even, yeah. even most like, you know, younger people that are to the left, which are mm-hmm. the vast majority of, of people them. under 40, um, that live in like, bigger cities, uh, or at least like not quote unquote, not rural, whatever that means exactly. Um, even though they may kind of like swing democratic again, like, as we talked about on this show, it's not because they like the Democrats. It's because the Republicans are so bad. If you look at everything Trump did economically, of course, it was about cutting taxes for the rich, uh, cutting regulations for corporations, I mean, literally, like, making the lives of working people that he touted, uh, like, as his base, like, even worse. Mm-hmm. 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 We saw a shift away from anything that resembled sort of like, you know, a new deal for the American working class, regardless of color or whatever. Um, and it was just kind of a, reducing everything down to, like, a culture war, you know? It's like, that's their mm-hmm. their talking points now. It's either culture war or conspiracy just celebrating uh, a cult of personality around Trump or talking about the big lie, the election.
5: What's really particularly strange about sort of that phenomena um, is this notion that, you know, again, when you promise people their jobs back, you have to actually deliver. And if you don't deliver, they're going to stop supporting you, right? He came in on this notion of economic populism, but lost in 2020 and it's really this question the biggest problem that you run into when you promise something is that you have to deliver and there's already a lot of skepticism about politicians delivering on anything they say right i think almost all of us have grown up in an era where there's almost total skepticism of that right um i know i always grew up with the idea that politicians lie you know it was just like it was a given it was a truism you just assumed it was happening, right? And there was no question about it. it. It wasn't like there were honest ones either. It's just all of them lied. Um, And so this kind of politics of rejection or this politics of sort of reaction against the other side really gives you a lot of advantages. And we've seen this with the Republican Party because the Republican Party doesn't actually have to achieve anything anymore. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to win. They don't have to change anything. All they have to do is complain mobilize culture war issues, and continue the outreach machine. And if they can do that, they're drawing support from the fact that they're not the other people. Now, for years, the Democratic Party didn't do that. For many years, the Democratic Party was really based on the notion that, well, all they're doing is saying negative stuff, but we're actually going to do positive stuff. And here's our program for the country, and blah, blah, blah. And that's how Obama won. I mean, that was the entire Obama campaign. But then they didn't deliver, right? Because when you promise, you actually have to give people stuff. And so by embracing this kind of politics of opposition to the Republicans, what they're able to do is they're able to sort of derive support without having to achieve anything. And it sort of solves a really complicated problem for them, which we were just talking about, which is that the traditional constituencies that vote Democrat, their lives have gotten worse over the last number of decades, not better. And that whole time they've been voting for Democrats who kept saying that they were going to make things better, right? If the Democrats can have this type of politics take control, allow them to sort of function in this world of total oppositionism to just Republicans and frame everything as this kind of binary between the two that subsumes all politics, if they're able to successfully do that, they might be able to transcend their own failures. And that will be the recipe for their future success. If they can do that, I think what's going to be really, really, really difficult, and you're you're seeing this a bit, though they are starting to embrace this a bit, this kind of confrontational politics, uh, or confrontational electoralism, I would say, rhetorical confrontationalism. Um, they're doing it kind of haltingly, and so it's definitely this sort of like Joe Biden wink nod, like, oh yeah, I know about the dark Brandon thing, ha ha ha, but I'm really serious. And I'm really going to continue to just do things the way I've always done things. And there's this sort of hedging that's happening right now. And so it'll be interesting to see, I think, as we get closer and closer and closer to the midterms, like as time goes on, which they are getting very close at this point, um, in these last like six weeks or so, we're really going to see how much the Democratic Party is willing to embrace this kind of politics of, com- of electoral confrontation or rhetorical confrontation. Um, if they are willing to embrace that politics, that changes a lot about the Democratic Party which for decades at this point has been a party of compromise. If they decide to take this politics on successfully, they can no longer be a party of compromise, right? So the trade-off of being able to excuse yourself from having to achieve anything is that you also can no longer compromise on anything as well. That you have to exist in a realm of total opposition. And so that is going to fly in the face of the entirety of the way that the Democratic Party does politics. And so we're going to see, I think, what that all ends up adding up to, because I think that there are, there are some tensions and paradoxes and contradictions with them taking on this approach that can lead to a lot of weirdness and difficulty for them going forward. And then there's a lot of elements of them taking this on, which on an electoral level are really, really smart. Um, but we'll just have to see how that plays out. I think we'll see in the next like four or five weeks.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think we're maybe reading too much into it. I feel like, you know, what happens on Twitter is one thing. And I think that's wishful (laughs) thinking on the, on the, by a lot of progressives and people that are excited about Biden. I mean, just like we talked about last week, I mean, Biden's, um, push for loan forgiveness has nothing to do about changing the structural things that create this mass poverty (laughs) inducing policies. It's Mm -hmm. about basically Mm -hmm. like, you know, opening the floodgates and giving some people a relief for a bit, you know, a, a, a chunk of the population, and that's it. I mean, but everything's going to go back to normal after that. You know, there's no structural right. change. Right. There's nothing that actually threatens capital. There's nothing about that, like, changes it so working people have a better shot. It's just about giving them a little bit of relief. You know, it's like a stimulus check. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm pessimistic. I mean, Biden also made it very clear during his speech that, you know, he totally rejects political violence. Of course, you know, what does the state, yeah. what does the state engage in? If anything, it's political right. violence. Uh, so of right. course, that's never off the table. And, um, yeah, I mean, right wing violence has never been more cemented, you know, in our lives than ever before. You know, last week we saw another shooting, uh, by another, uh, young white man, this time in Bend, Oregon, at a shopping center, uh, you know, that posted racist and sort of reactionary things online and had a manifesto. Again, like, you know, nothing has really changed. I mean, this stuff is with us and baked into the core of this country and it's gonna take, you know, a a massive social revolution and complete change to get this stuff, you know, out of our system. And, uh, you know, this is why we're anarchists and we place hope in like social movements and people building outside of the state. But yeah, it is interesting to see the way that they're responding, uh, to a lot of this. And there is stuff to show that there is going to be sort of like more energy for the Democrats in the midterms. I think that we should, if that's the case, we should also be prepared you know, unfortunately, for the same thing that we saw under Joe Biden, which is that when people get Democrats elected into office, usually there's a sort of a drain on the energy of social movements, which actually like you yeah. know, creates the impetus for all this stuff to begin with. I think one of <laughs> the reasons that we're seeing so much of a pushback, um, at least rhetorically from some people in the Brandon camp is because people went so hard after you know roe v wade was overturned you know think of everything Mm -hmm. that happened you know there was uh massive protests we saw months and months of you know people under the banner of jane's revenge uh vandalizing pro-life fake pregnancy clinics we saw big showdowns with the far right probably you know an, an upturn that we haven't seen in the past couple years at least uh, mm-hmm. people, you know, like liberals and progressive actually starting to get in the mix with Proud Boys and stuff like that. I mean, that's a new phenomenon. We haven't seen that. I mean, the Proud Boys actually going after, like, pride celebrations and stuff where like liberals and progressives go like middle-class mm-hmm. liberals mm-hmm. and progressives and people having to basically decide what side of the fence they're on. And a lot of people yeah. starting to actually get involved in pushing back against these far right groups. I mean, that's a big shift. I mean, these are yes. people that sign checks for Democrats and like vote and like are involved mm-hmm. locally and rub shoulders with um, elected officials. And, you know, now they're being targeted and they kind of have to figure out, how they respond to that reality, so I'm not surprised that we're seeing this. I just think that we should be mm, not at all really pessimistic about it and like <laughs> and like what it means um there's actually I was listening to uh the Black Rose Federation put out a recording they did at the last Boston Anarchist Book Fair, and they were talking about the history of Bernie, and they were saying. Mm one of the things that happened when he came into office in Vermont was that so many of the progressives and leftists were involved in his campaign that after he won, uh, he shifted, he shifted essentially to the right because he was in a position of, you know, governing the city, uh, that a lot of the people that were around that would have like protested and like pushed back against him to, you know, quote unquote, push him more to the left. They were gone because they were staffers within his organization. So he ended up taking a much more, you know, rightward stance than he originally set out to do because so much of that energy was sapped up into the electoral system. I mean, I know this is stuff that people have heard a million times, but I think again, it's, it's important to point it out. And um, yeah, I think that if there is, you know, a blue wave during the midterms and like sort of the Republican push is kind of like uh, pushed back a little bit, maybe because gas prices aren't so high or people are really upset about, Uh, Roe v. Wade, I think we should also keep in mind that that will probably mean that social movements will lose a lot of their punch, which is the last thing in the world that we need right now, because we're going to have to fight tooth and nail to get to a point where, you know, we can push back against some of the stuff that's been pushed into place. Well, speaking of Biden's uh, speech about fascism, you know, one of the things that he said in his talk was that, you know, how great it was that COVID was now basically no longer <laughs> not part of our lives, which is fascinating because it continues to, you know, kill people every day. And we're still very much in a position where people are being infected all the time. Um, and there's actually a new study that came out in Forbes and a couple other places where it estimates that the life expectancy in the U.S. has dropped. Uh, sharply between 2019 and 2021, so during the time when the pandemic hit, uh, decreasing by three years on average, which is the steepest decline in nearly 100 years. Of course, this impact hits uh, Latinx, Black, and Indigenous populations the hardest. And despite the common threat of the COVID-19 pandemic, there is no comparable drop in life expectancy in other advanced nations. So this is like happening specifically in the US that we're seeing this three year drop in life expectancy, which is a pretty big deal. I mean, we've seen a drop in life and expectancy um in previous years, even among like white workers. But the fact that this is happening to such a degree, like really says a lot about life in the United States right now. Yeah. Well, and you can look at this historically, right? Not not in the American context, but um
5: on on a broad historical level. You can see this in a Roman context. You can see this in the Soviet Union, right? Um but in these sort of large-scale political projects like the American political project where there's sort of a vision of how we're supposed to live in the world, when those projects start to collapse, um there's usually a concurrent drop in life expectancy. Now some of the, some of the time, uh that's because of wars breaking out, right? In the case of the Soviet Union, for example, it was because of stagnation, really. Um, people stopped having kids. And when they were interviewed and polled as to why they stopped having kids, a lot of it had to come down to the fact that they just didn't really see much of a the future. Then there was a spike in birth rates in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. And then by the time Putin had been in power for four or five years, that had dropped right back down and even lower than it was before. And life expectancy had dropped. And you can look at life expectancy drop and how that moves entirely concurrently with the fall in things like quality of life or income or things like this. Now that shouldn't be surprising to anybody, right? That when you're poorer and life is harder, you don't live as long. But the fact that right now what's happening in America is this is something that we should be really, really attentive to. Um, we're already seeing with millennials like a, a significant drop in birth rate. Right. Like a lot of millennials are not having kids. And I know for a lot of my friends are not having kids. That is incredibly intentional. Um, and part of that intentionality does have to do with the fact that the world kind of sucks right now and they don't really want to bring children into it. Um, and that makes sense. Uh When people are making decisions like that, we need to be paying attention to the fact that people are making decisions like that, <laughs> because it's not that people are being alarmist. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about climate change stuff later in the show, but um, we are watching our standard of living fall apart. We've been watching our standard of living fall apart for, you know, since the financial crisis. And we could, I mean, some people could even argue before that. People in the Rust Belt have been watching their standard of living fall since the mid-1990s, right? And so the idea that life is harder now, the idea that life is more hazardous now, um, can be measured in a lot of different ways. But that is our reality at the moment. And and historically, that reality tends to conform with moments of political system collapse, and so we really need to i mean it's an indicator right it's an important indicator of just how bad things are here right now in the u.s or how bad people feel that things are in the u.s
1: right now yeah well with that in mind let's get on to the climate change news because this isn't going to be really cool <laughs> any better uh so according to All positive
5: stories today everyone All right. positive stories. yeah
1: this is a real sunny show right now <laughs> according according to npr uh greenland's rapidly melting ice will it Inevitably, raise global sea levels by at least 10.6 inches, more than twice as much as previously forecast, according to a new study published on Monday. Yeah, again, what does that actually mean? A lot of people live by coastlines. That, that's going to mean mm-hmm. either we're going to have to build like uh, Donald Trump is right now around Mar-a-Lago to raise the shoreline. Um, Or people are going to be displaced if they're poor. And if the society shows us anything, it's like those that are poor and indigenous and largely of color are going to be pushed out of a lot of places and those are just no longer going to be inhabitable. And that's going to mean massive displacement and that's going to mean geopolitically a lot of things. That's going to mean a lot of climate refugees and a lot Mm -hmm. of people being forced out of where they live and that's going to have huge impacts on whatever the economy looks like
5: especially when you when you couple the floods and the melting of glaciers and things like Pakistan right like Pakistan's mostly underwater at this point because of melting glaciers
1: literally I mean, our next story yeah so in Pakistan yeah. there's cataclysmic flooding uh, according to here's one article in vox pakistan is home to over 7200 glaciers more than anywhere mm-hmm. outside of the poles uh, which is I mean, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Rising temperatures linked yeah. to climate change are likely making them melt faster and earlier, adding water to rivers and streams that were already swollen by rainfall. So far, the floods have washed away roads and buildings. I'm sure some people have seen uh videos on social media destroying farms and stranding hundreds of thousands over the weekend, which brought another bout of torrential rain. Government officials said the death toll has soared past 1,000. And water has inundated as much as a third of the country. And I do want to shout out, there are anarchists involved uh, doing lots of mutual aid stuff. We will link that in our show notes. You can also go to the It's Going Down uh, Twitter page, and we're sharing a lot of their stuff. So shout out to the anarchists in Pakistan. They're doing amazing mutual aid stuff on the ground. But yeah, I mean, like you said, like a third of the country is underwater right now. I mean, this is a large... You know, country with a lot of people. And as people pointed out, this is a country that contributes, you know, a very small sliver of carbon into the environment that's causing climate change. And these are the people that are affected by it. It's, it's sickening. And this is what's coming for the rest of us. As this is happening in Pakistan, we're seeing massive floods like on the other side of it in like the United States and also in places like China. The other thing we're seeing is massive droughts and like rivers dry up. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in Pakistan, mm-hmm. the way they're experiencing this is you know intense flooding throughout the throughout the country. And think about the devastating effects on that not only just the loss of infrastructure but also just in the food
5: system. And when we start to
1: think about it, you know, we talked
5: about resource wars last week, right? Like or two weeks ago, I think, um, where we were starting to get into this discussion of really starting to take the idea of resource wars seriously, right? There had been kind of this, this notion that had been sort of, you know, talked about for, for years and years and years. But, you know, and Roy wrote a book about resource wars in, like, the early 2000s. I mean, like, this, this is a concept that people have been talking about for a while, and in reality is a reality that people have been experiencing around the world for some time. I think it's just becoming really obvious to us now that this is something that's happening. But one of the sort of distortions in this conversation generally is this assumption that uh, climate change means one thing, like a specific thing, or it modifies the climate in a specific way. When in reality, what we're talking about really is the sort of falling off balance of what is otherwise a relatively intricate ecosystem, right? Namely the planet. Um, Anyone who's ever studied environmental science, you know, or just you know, has done philosophy, um, like specifically post-structuralist philosophy. One of the big narratives in both of those fields is this idea that um, the things that exist in an ecosystem are unique. They're particular. They change. And in that change and in their relations, they construct the ecosystem. So if you rip that ecosystem up, if you tear down an old growth forest, you can't just plant new trees. It doesn't work that way. You would have to reconstruct the totality of the history of that square inch of land to be able to reconstruct that ecosystem. And when an ecosystem gets thrown off balance like that, you start to see relatively severe effects start to get, you know, more and more and more prevalent, right? So you can see this in, like, situations where invasive species were introduced to deal with other problems. Like, for example, in Lake Erie, they introduced zebra mussels into the ecosystem in, I think, the 1970s to essentially eat the trash. Right. And zebra mussels come from the Black Sea, um, which is a uh, you know, an area that is incredibly similar climate-wise to the Great Lakes in a lot of ways. They even have lake effects stuff. Um they're the only two parts of the world that have that. Right? So they're really, really similar climate-wise, at least for part of the year. And so the assumption was, oh yeah, this will be fine. It'll it'll just totally work. It'll be okay. They work in the Black Sea, they don't like You know, their populations are relatively easily controllable, blah, blah, blah. They put them in Lake Erie and their populations explode. And they explode so much that it kills a lot of the other life in the lake. It creates layers of zebra mussel shells on the bottom of Lake Erie that were many, many, many inches thick. It was shutting down power plants that were having water intake from the lake because the zebra mussels would get all stuck in the water intake tubes, right? It was a disaster. So then what they had to do was they had to do an even more severe thing. Which was get in there with the Army Corps of Engineers and dredge all of these zebra mussels off the bottom of the lake, right? Which then had other side effects, right? And so when you throw an ecosystem off any ecosystem, even a really, really self-contained small one, um, it has increasingly severe, uh, kind of boomerang effects, right? So imagine the planet as a whole, right? You can look at in places in China right now. I forgot where exactly, but there was a, um, a picture of a dam on on a river in China, central China, uh, which supplies, which has a hydroelectric power plant, which supplies a lot of power for a lot of the central part of the country. Normally, the water at that reservoir is, I think it was like 180 feet. Um, It's like 10 feet now. It's so low, in fact, that they can barely generate power. And so not only has the water level dropped significantly, but also now that means that people can't get power in large parts of China, or at least it's relatively intermittent at the moment, right? Those kinds of effects are going to then have follow-on effects, right? And so we're going to see, I mean, we saw a bit of a precursor to this, a bit of foreshadowing in New Orleans in 2005, right? We saw what happened when race and economic class collide with environmental disaster, Right. And when it, when our environment collides with climate change to create the conditions for said disasters, we saw what happened there. Right. That is really our future. Like that is our future. That situation in New Orleans was so devastating socially and politically and economically, um, because of the way that that tragedy was just as much a tragedy of American colonialism as it was a tragedy of environmental devastation, right? But in this discussion, often we think of the environment in a bubble. But really, we have to start to think about climate change in reference to the social structures that live in that climate and how that's going to fundamentally shift everything. I mean, let's just take one factor. Um, capitalist real estate values. The amount of capital that will be lost from the coast flooding is almost immeasurable. It, that in itself could entirely implode the insurance industry. Just in itself. When there's major strings of hurricanes in the United States, the insurance industry is a hard time keeping afloat. Right? Mass flooding along the coasts, which we're already starting to see happen, 20 years from now, could collapse the entire American economy if it hasn't collapsed already. Like these are kind of, this is the scale and the stakes that we're
1: talking about here. Right? Like we're talking about significant, significant social impacts. Also flooding, I mean, think about the fires. I mean, I know there's some places in California now where they don't even give you or they won't sell you home insurance because they're like your yeah. house is probably going to burn down because yeah. every summer, you know, it goes up in flames. And yeah, yeah, which is like you said many times on the show, like, you know, the capitalist economy is built on capitalists, banking on their investments, giving them Money. If they can't do that, you don't really have a capitalist economy that actually functions. Right. Right. Well, and without insurance,
5: how can you predict the security of your investment? Right. Like, so there's all of these moments in which the social structure collides with climate change to create effects that are way more intense than just the environmental effects. Right. I mean, we're talking whole parts of the country where it it will be functionally uninhabitable, not necessarily because of environmental conditions, but because of economic ones, right? How are you going to have a house in a wooded area in California without home insurance? I mean, you can, but how are you going to afford that when it burns down four times in a decade, right? And then what happens when whole parts of California become uninhabitable, economically uninhabitable, right? That's a whole new problem set. We've never really dealt with the question of, what happens when vast parts of already, you know, pretty densely populated areas all of a sudden get deemed uninhabitable? You know, we've seen what happens in a town like Centralia, Pennsylvania, which is small, was small. Um, when an environmental, an environmental disaster causes displacement in a context like that, I mean, it took the EPA years to get people to leave Centralia. Years. And we're talking like a couple thousand people. Years. Can you imagine what that looks like when we start to scale it to millions? Right? Tens of millions. You know, it just in the United States, we are talking about a level of shift in the way that we live that will fundamentally change everything. Not necessarily for the better, but it will fundamentally change everything. You know, I think we used to say this like 10 years ago, you know, in insurrectionist world a lot, we used to always talk about like how you know, we need to become the disaster, right? It's not about having disasters. It's about having disasters be intentional, right? Disasters not being about destruction, but disasters being about moments which change the way in which we conceive of how we live, right? Something which fundamentally breaks down a normative structure and creates the possibility of a new one, right? Those always can end badly. I think anyone that tries to argue that you can predict the outcome of disastrous situations, uprisings, revolts, um, is engaging in historical fiction, right? And we need to all stop that, because it makes us sound ridiculous. But the reality is, is that we have no idea what this is going to mean. All we can do is we can look at the conditions around us, where we are, and we can start to see the power dynamics around the effects of this, right? This is going to be a thing that's going to play out in all of our lives. As we go forward, there's nothing that's going to stop really this effect from happening. And it's something that we need to adjust our politics to be able to address the fact that this is our reality. Not to fix it, not to solve it, not to make it go back because it can't, but to address the reality that this is what we live in. And we have to engage in politics in this world, not the world that came before. Right. Right. That's a very different terrain that we're in.
1: Yeah. I would encourage people, if you haven't, You know, go on to the social media of Cooperation Jackson, which is, uh, autonomous, libertarian, municipalist, uh, black liberation, uh, group in so-called Jackson, Mississippi. But there, what's happened is there was massive flooding. They've already had problems because of, you know, neoliberalism just wrecking the infrastructure there for, Decades, but because of massive flooding, their water system has been polluted. Like they're, they've declared a state of emergency. Uh, they brought in the national guard to ensure that people have water. Uh, but groups like Cooperation Jackson are mobilizing and giving out water donations to people and making sure that people, especially in predominantly black areas, are getting access to it and you know homeless communities and stuff like that. But I mean, check out what they're doing and what they have to deal with right now. I mean, there's some. it's it's real like uh they they just posted um a scene from water distribution effort on thursday this was made possible by hundreds of donations that have come in thank you for everybody this is what thousands of jackson residents are experiencing they just showed long lines of people coming up to get water the struggle is real stay tuned and uh stay engaged please keep supporting the people in jackson we are doing as much as we can and material aid distributions as we can in the days ahead. Any and all donations are welcome. Don't let this happen in your city. Build alternatives now. Yeah, this is real. I mean, this is not what's coming. This is what's here uh literally right now. And shout out to groups like Cooperation Jackson, which are, uh you know, mobilizing and organizing to meet that need. And I would encourage people. We've tried to put on all of It's Going Down social media to support them and donate. Uh, I know groups in different cities are also like collecting uh, water and other supplies to bring out to Jackson. I think that's amazing. Love to see those autonomous supply chains and hubs get uh, built up again. Um, But I think another political question that is raised is how do we intervene and organize within these situations especially when we know that the state not only has failed, but will fail to meet the needs of people in the face of these disasters. And what does it mean to, you know, as you said, that old slogan of, you know, be the crisis, what does it mean to actually come out of this more powerful outside and against the state than just being a bandaid for it requires us to
5: recognize the time and space in which disasters happen. Right. So there's this tendency, I think this comes partially from international NGO world. Um, To think about disasters globally, which is not a bad thing inherently in itself, analytically, right? Seeing these things as systemic is not bad at all, trust me. But we can't respond that way. (laughs) What we end up with in situations in which we try and respond in large mass centralized ways is we end up with the exact same problem that Cooperation Jackson is encouraging people to solve now. We end up with structures like FEMA. We end up with Oxfam. We end up with these organizations that, though they may have resources, have nothing to do with our lives, that we have no control over, and that when they come to intervene, they come to intervene at the cost of any political and social autonomy that we may have. We have to completely conform to their conditions in order to receive their assistance. right? And again, people who are in New Orleans can talk for hours about what dealing with FEMA was like. The reality is, and, you know, I say this as a person who lives in the Rust Belt, where we have this conversation consistently, there is nowhere right now where there is not disaster. Nowhere. That we live in a space in which disaster is perpetual. Now, in some places, that's a lot more obvious than others. You know, you live in a violent, poor Rust Belt city. That is really obvious you live in a slum in Brazil that is really obvious, right? Like these things become really obvious in certain circumstances, but they're not absent in other ones. They're just more concealed. And what that means is that all of these situations, these disasters that we experience are different, that we sort of have this term we use for them. But in reality, we're responding to very different circumstances on the ground, right? In our neighborhoods, Right on our street, with our friends. If we ever want these scenarios in any kind of way to be something that um, don't become the foundation of authoritarianism, right? Disasters often become the foundation of authoritarianism when large institutions are able to sort of dominate the space. The other thing that happens in disaster situations is power can break down. And so what happened in New Orleans when people saw is that in the midst of disaster, there was space for people to figure out how to respond to the disaster. As long as they were willing to take that power for themselves, and as long as they were willing to do that separate from organizations like FEMA. And that is what they did, really impressively, in New Orleans. Right? Mutual Aid Disaster Relief does this in in a lot of places, and they're amazing as a result. But Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is not a singular organization. I mean, it is a nonprofit, but its organizational structure is localized. People organize locally around how to deal with disaster. right? And it's a coordinating body. And what that does is it allows people on the ground to decide what autonomy looks like for them without some organization coming in and telling them how to do it. right? Without some government entity coming in and just trying to solve the material problem. But it allows people to actually rethink the structure of how they live. Now, when we're dealing with Disasters like this, like what we're talking about, we are talking about social and political and economic disasters as much as we are talking about environmental ones, both in their causes and in their effects. And so, therefore, the result of that disaster should not just be building a taller break wall to stop your city from getting flooded, but it should be fundamentally changing the social, political and economic structure that allows for that disaster to be so impactful on poor communities, often of color right that allows for disasters to become the foundation for the building of police states that allow for disasters to become the foundations for things like curfew regimes like what also happened in new orleans right um we can in the midst of disaster that isn't of our cause of our choosing we can read those political situations read those circumstances and in certain circ- in certain situations can decide how we want to handle that disaster and in that process gain autonomy, right? That we can help whole communities of people support themselves in that situation when the state breaks down and when the economy breaks down as what happens in disaster situations, right? Um, that it's definitely not a hope for disaster. Um, but it is the recognition that in responding to disaster, if we do things properly, the result can be very different than the world that we had when we came into it. I mean, this is a thing a friend says, a friend of mine says all the time, but you know, they always say, uh, like, everybody everybody likes parks, and everyone likes well-lit streets, and everyone likes safety, right? That's not the question. You know, when you're in a city and there's public debates about that's not the question. The question isn't whether or not people want safety. The question is what safety means and who gets to define that for people. Right. We can see that play out in like gentrified areas. Right. Safety means white people get to call the police on everybody else. And their view of safety gets prioritized over the lack of safety that is then experienced by the people that get the cops called on them. Right. In this situation, we can look at disaster response the same way. It's not just the question of whether we respond to disaster. We're living in the midst of it. We're already responding to it. It's a question of how and what the outcome of that choice is. And so when we enter into disaster scenarios, even ones as acute and intensive as the ones that we are starting to experience, um, we are not talking about situations that we are that we have zero control over. We are talking about situations that, just like any other situation in life, we are an active participant in, and we can choose how to engage with that. Um, if we do that properly, we have the ability to build a new world. I mean, what are revolts except disasters in a lot of ways? We have the ability to build a new world, but when not done properly, we fall into scenarios in which states become more powerful, in which Brad Pitt makes a bunch of money building a bunch of cheap housing in New Orleans, in which, you know, real estate companies get rich, in which insurance companies screw everybody over, right? That becomes our world instead. It becomes a capitalist dystopia, right? Uh, for those of you that are interested in some of the dynamics of that, I mean, Naomi Klein wrote a really good book on disaster capitalism many years ago uh, called Shock Doctrine, which, you know, for whatever people feel about Naomi Klein, that book is amazing. And I really, really highly recommend people reading it. But what it does is it gets into the economics of disasters because disasters don't just mean economic loss. Disasters can also mean economic gain for different industries. Right. And many of those people in those industries will protect their ability to have those gains. At all costs. And often that means doing whatever they can to eliminate autonomous disaster relief initiatives. Because if autonomous disaster relief initiatives are successful, they don't make their profit margin. Right. So again, we're not just engaging with disaster ecologically, right? We have to think about it beyond that. We have to engage with disaster politically and economically and socially. And when we start to think about it that way, we not only can come out of the disaster in a way in which we don't end up living in a capitalist, authoritarian, dystopian nightmare, we might also be able to emerge from disaster with an understanding of the conditions that allowed for those disasters to have the social effects, and with enough energy to try and change the way that things function to prevent that from happening again.
1: Alright, we're just going to end with a discussion on one of the uh, far-right <laughs> fever dreams of the week. Um, the right is freaking out about what happened on Sunday in Roanoke, Texas. The members of the Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club, that's a mouthful, uh, were armed with AR-15s and other uh, assault weapons, and they were providing security for uh, a drag brunch at a business, and they were squaring off against uh, several armed and unarmed far-right protesters. This includes the... I think it's like Protect Texas Kids or something like that. I think I'm getting yeah, the name wrong, yeah. but the organizer is a self-described Christian fascist. These are some of the same folks that uh, people have been uh, squaring off against in the same general area. They've been organizing a lot on campus, and they have direct ties with white nationalists and grippers and the Proud Boys. Uh, this is interesting because it created such a stir within the right-wing uh, mm-hmm. Echo chamber, um, you know, lots of like disinformation going around, uh, you know, lots of, you know, armed antifa, you know, allowing kids to be groomed and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> it also just shows the way that the far right really actually hates people being armed and yeah. freaks out when certain people, especially people of color, black people, indigenous folks, uh, leftists, arm themselves, anarchists, anti-fascists. And, you know, all the talk about the Second Amendment goes right out the window. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it's also interesting that a lot of the coverage from a lot of, like, the LGBTQ press was very sympathetic and, you know, calling people defenders. Uh, a lot of people on social media talking about, hey, this is awesome. I want to join. Um, I think we should defend ourselves against these fascists, all that stuff. I don't know. Just interesting to see that, you know that discussion enter into the American mainstream. Um, I'm just so sick of this kind of narrative of like escalating political violence, which just, you know, totally, um, sidesteps any discussion of where that violence is coming from, which is, it's coming from the far right. It's coming from the state and people are attempting to defend themselves. And, you know, the videos I went through the, that group's feed, and I watched all the videos they had they were very disciplined. Um, you know, they obviously didn't shoot anybody. Uh <laughs> they basically stood there, protected the space, they walked people back to their cars. Um they actually tried to de-escalate the situation when people would come over. They'd try to like basically shoo the Fari people back to their own other side across the street. Um, you know, they also weren't running around acting like cops. They were actually pretty quiet. Right. Um yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was great. And I thought that if, if I was in that situation, I definitely would have appreciated somebody, uh, walking me back to my car while some, you know, jerks, you know, screaming in my face about how I'm a groomer. Um, hmm. you know, it's also just funny. It's like when people decide they want to take their kid to something at a private business, you know, suddenly they want to run over there and tell people how to live their lives and they want to pass all these <laughs> laws. I mean, literally they're talking about passing a law in Texas, which would outlaw. Uh, you know, people going to something like this. Um, which is interesting. I mean, certainly armed anti-fascists will continue to play into, uh, that narrative for the far right. You know, as they just want to grasp anything. They can continue to have these discussions. But I think, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see people's positive reaction to this. I mean, it, it makes sense. Well, Nick, it, it goes, it goes to show the effect of a lot of the work
5: that we as anarchists, as a community have been doing.
0: Um,
5: there was a period of time where I think we existed as sort of an ephemeral or almost ethereal presence in a lot of political movements where like, we weren't really physically anywhere, but we would like show up in large numbers places. Right. Um, and didn't really have a lot of ability to impact things on the ground in, a way like this. But over the years since then, since that period of, you know, this was maybe 15 years ago um, over the years. One of the things that we've seen a lot is that uh, contrary to what many people said, it wasn't that militancy drove people away, but that as things got more confrontational, there were more and more and more people identifying as anarchists, and there were more and more and more people sympathetic with what we're doing. Right? It's exactly the opposite of what you hear from a lot of mass movement people who are like, oh, well, those tactics are alienating. It, that That's not the reality that we've seen. The reality that we've seen is that people are furious and that they want to do something. That they don't necessarily know where to go to do that, and then they see people doing things. And years and years of us being willing to be out there in dangerous circumstances, willing to defend communities, willing to put ourselves on the line for just the right reasons, not even for any sort of benefit gain on our, on our end, but just for the right reasons. Years and years and years of that have really gone a long way in not convincing people that we're okay or something like that, because that's not really relevant, but in bringing our activity back down onto the ground where we are, where we live, where we act, where we go about our days, right? The space that we're in all the time. It's allowed us to exist places persistently to engage in things over time. Right. What we're seeing with this event and with this jump around gun club, like, These kinds of things are the, the result of that. The result of many, many, many years of a lot of hard, you know, difficult, tiring work that happens without any glory, that happens without any recognition, that people are just doing because it's the right thing to be doing where they're at.
1: I was just gonna say, I mean, I think in this situation that the guns aren't even the the important thing, it's just that the people are there putting themselves in between people and the violent fascists which had signs like drag the drag queens away or something like that i mean just there was a proud boy out there or somebody that looked like a proud boy i don't know if they were physically in the group and they had like a a a negan bat which was you know like a, a baseball bat that had like barbed wire wrapped around it you know i mean obviously very threatening you know they're insinuating violence you know People kept coming by talking about how they wanted to, like, fight them and square off against them. I don't know. It's just, again, like, you see the videos. These people, like, they can't wrap their heads around that, like, you know, people on the left are actually armed and, like, you know, are going to go out there. They kept saying, like... Oh, these people must've gotten like the Biden money and like gone out and bought all this stuff. Or maybe they took their conservative uncle's gun or it's just silly. It's like they, they're just so removed from reality and have no concept of what's actually going on, which is, it's scary in itself.
5: Yeah. Well, and it's what happens when you get locked into these kind of echo chambers of ideology, right? Like in right-wing world, all of what they're saying makes total sense and it's entirely incomprehensible to the rest of us. Right. Um, I think what I'm saying is like anarchists used to exist, I wouldn't say in a similar space in which we were only talking to ourselves, but um, we exist in a different relationship to our communities and to people outside of our political communities than we do now. And now we exist in this space in which um, it it makes sense and we have the capacity to show up in a town like this with a John Brown gun club and protect an event like this. And that, that things like this happen frequently now. Right? Where anarchists are doing security for events or helping do security for marches or, you know, confronting the far right on the edges of things so other people don't have to deal with them. Like, this is something that we've been doing for many years, right? Now, I think the thing that we have to be somewhat aware of, and this is a conversation I know we talked about before the show, maybe having in more detail later, but one of the things that we do have to be aware of as we're doing this is a lot of that sort of work recently in these communities has been framed purely around the idea of opposing fascists, right? Which is fine. Obviously, fascists need to be opposed, right, with everything we've got. But at the same time, we all know that the anarchist project is bigger than that, right? It's not just about opposing fascism. And so as we're doing this kind of work, we have to be doing this kind of work in other ways that go beyond just countering Nazis, right we have to be doing this i mean back in the day food not bomb shepherds used to exist everywhere feeding people you know like those kinds of things we do these kinds of things already we need to keep doing them and we need to really start to understand that you know again i think that there's this tendency in the us to try and think about how to make revolution easy like how do we get mass movements to go do this thing all of that ignores how hard this is how much work it takes how many years These kinds of things play out over, you know, the Russian Revolution played out almost over almost an entire century, right? So we are doing the hard, real work when we're doing things like this. We are doing the things that 20 years from now, people in that place will remember. That we're doing the things that make our movement strong, that connect us to the communities that we live in, that help us build those communities as walls against the state right? This is really the work. You know, what, what that group of people did down in Texas, like, big shout out, like, that was awesome and I'm a person who's even critical of armed groups at times. Um, what y'all did is you did armed self-defense the right way. You did it without it being all macho. You did it without it being the primary thing about the event. Like, it did not become the primary thing about the event. The primary thing about the event was the event still. Um, It didn't come to dominate everything. It didn't come to frame and shape everything. It was a group of people that was there to do a thing and they did it and they did it well. And they did it with discipline and they did it with care and they did it with intention. And so like big shout out to that crew of people. Like y'all did the thing. And we all need to be doing those kinds of things as we go forward.
1: This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check it's going down.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to it'sgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.